Good morning. The title of today's message is, Did God Give Me a License to Sin? <laughs> Today, I want to talk to you about the extravagant freedom provided for us in this almost too good to be true gospel of grace. When we first hear the true gospel of grace preached, we might be afraid that ministers are really giving people a license to sin. And the truth is, it is possible for hearers to misunderstand grace if they don't understand the context of relationship with God through faith. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is speaking about having right standing with God by placing our faith in God the same way that Abraham received right standing with God, by faith. And he goes on and refers to what David said in Psalms 32 beginning in Romans 4, verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God, because of Jesus, no longer counts our sins against us. We have been made free from sin and its power by the blood of Jesus. All of our sins were counted against Christ, and he took them all into death, where they will never be counted against us by God. Now, they will probably be counted against us by our neighbors, <laughs> or our spouses, or our kids, or whatever. People will count our sins against us, but God does not. We are now free from having our sins imputed to us. The word imputed in a legal sense means that I become legally responsible for those sins. God says he doesn't impute. He doesn't make us legally responsible to pay for our sin because the payment for sin is death. We can't pay for it. We have to receive what Christ has done on our behalf. So we are now never legally responsible to pay God for our sins. Nobody can pay God for sins. <laughs> Jesus took them away. He made that payment in a sense to set us free from it. When we first hear about this freedom and understand just how extravagant it is, it can be kind of scary because the message of grace, when understood correctly, can sound like we're saying, go ahead sin all you want. <laughs> it doesn't matter at all what you do. God will still love you. Now, I have never heard anybody preach that. <laughs> but it has become a slogan that those who don't appreciate grace like to throw at those of us who do appreciate grace. Oh, you just give people a license to sin. You just tell them it doesn't matter at all. And I'm thinking, I have never, ever heard any preacher Tell a believer, it's okay to sin, go right ahead. Nope. <laughs> but when we understand just how free we are from the imputation of sin, that can be the following conclusion. If God's not counting my sins against me, well then, might as well have me some sin. <laughs> doesn't work. It actually doesn't work. Even the Apostle Paul had to correct people's misunderstandings regarding this extravagant freedom uh, from the imputation of sin. In Romans 6, 
verse 15 in the Passion Translation, he says this, What are we to do then? Should we sin to our heart's content since there's no law to condemn us anymore? What a terrible thought. <laughs> the Apostle Paul is making the point that it is because of a change in our relationship to God, the law, and sin that we don't continue to choose a life of sin. We were talking on the way here about this relationship his aunt and the people at the restaurant were in. And he was using it as an explanation for the change in covenant. This person he was related to at one time was his cousin. <laughs> but there was a change in covenant. People got divorced and made new covenants. And because of the new covenant, the cousin actually became the sister, <laughs> a stepsister. So because of the change in relationship, there is a change in identity. And that's what we need to see and remember. That's why we can tell a Christian, yep, you can sin all you want. It's one of those statements that sounds or looks really good on paper, but it doesn't work out so well in real life. It doesn't work. And believers find that out pretty quickly. This reminds me of a true story that I read years ago by uh, Charles Spurgeon. Mr. Spurgeon, in his, one of his books, was relating the story about him ministering to a lady to bring her to Christ. But she was very reluctant to receive Christ. And so he inquired, why don't you want this eternal life? Why don't you want to know God? <laughs> and she said, I really love drinking and dancing. <laughs> and I really don't think I could give it up. He goes, well, that's okay. She's like, what? <laughs> he says, no. If you want to receive Christ, if you want eternal life, if you want relationship with God, you can have it. Don't worry about your works afterwards. Don't worry about the drinking and dancing. You can drink and dance all you want. So she thought, okay. <laughs> if I don't have to give anything up to become saved, then I would like to be saved. And she received Christ. And as the story goes, sometime later, she was at a meeting, he was there, and she went up to him and she said, you old fox, you knew I wouldn't want to live the same old life. How dare you tell me the truth like that? You tricked me. And he goes, yeah, I did. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Because so many people think I have to clean up my life before I come to God. I have to change what I am. There is a member in extended family of a gay couple that is married. And one of them said to my daughter, you know, if there was a God who would listen to me, I would pray for you. They think they have to change what they are in order to come to Christ. And it's not true. Jesus does all the changing. She couldn't change herself, and she knew she couldn't change herself, and that's why she didn't want to make a commitment that she knew she didn't have the power to keep. But Charles Spurgeon says, I know in whom I have believed, and he is well able. He is well able to do in you and through you what you can't even imagine him doing. I love the fact that she made the leap. She made the jump. She didn't try to change herself. She let Jesus do the changing for her. I like this story because it shows that Mr. Spurgeon knew and had confidence in the power of our union with Christ. He understood that you can't get born again 
and remain the same. It's just not possible. You can't jump into a full swimming pool and not get wet. Not possible. It's just not possible. You can't die in Christ and be raised a new creation and remain a sinner. Not possible. And that's why Mr. Spurgeon had no problem telling this woman that basically she could sin all she wanted after she received Christ. Because he knew the power of God's grace to completely change the heart of a sinner into that of a saint. I also like the story because this lady knew in and of herself she had no power and no desire. <laughs> no desire to even change. <laughs> she knew how helpless she was in that particular area of her life. I love that. Now, one of the things I like about that, though, is that she wasn't willing to make a deal with God. Because I've had those conversations with someone who's struggling with sin and wanting to come to Christ. And they're like, but I can't let go of this. You don't have to. You don't have to let go of your sin. You don't have the power to let go. You don't have the power to save yourself. You don't have the power to change your mind. You don't have the power. But so often they hear change and then be saved instead of be saved and let Christ change you. The freedom is in Christ, not in our ability to make promises or deals <laughs> or any of that. Now the question becomes, well, what if she didn't stop drinking and dancing? Would she still be saved? Yes. <laughs> because if she placed her faith in Christ and received Christ, then she is still saved. The lack of sin in a, especially a new believer's life is not the evidence of her salvation. It's not about the lack of change. And some Christians get really mad at themselves because they want a big change in their life. And that's why they come to Christ. And when they don't see a big change in themselves, they get discouraged. But the litmus test of our salvation is not behavior. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you have Jesus, you're saved. Period. <laughs> In Romans 8, verse 9, the Apostle Paul is speaking regarding the source of our new life, and he says this, But ye are not in the flesh. And that refers to Adam. Ye are not in the flesh, ye are not in Adam, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Salvation is Jesus. Period. <laughs> it's not Jesus plus fruit. The fruit will come. <laughs> so often we expect big changes in people who first come to the Lord. But that's not the evidence of salvation. Christ inside of them is the evidence of salvation. And you know what? We can't tell by looking at somebody if Jesus lives in there. You can't. Especially if they've come out of a really rough background takes God a while to bring out those changes. The Apostle Paul is basically saying that Jesus is salvation, complete and total salvation apart from works, good or bad. If Jesus lives in us, then we have already died and been risen to new life in him, and we are currently seated in heavenly places far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. That's the truth of us. 
regardless of what our life looks like. <laughs> we have to start with what is true. But that doesn't mean that we always live according to who we really are. And it doesn't mean that we are no longer capable of great sin. I believe great sin for a believer usually comes out of great pain. Sin is really us trying to meet our own needs or medicate our own pain. It's us trying to do what God wants to do for us and has already done. <laughs> Even though I am a born-again, spirit-filled believer, I am still capable of great sin. I have, in the past, even committed great sin. And yet, Christ never left me. Not for one second. Because the truth is, if I find myself in what others would call great sin, then I am in desperate need of his presence and his help. Because Christ is the only way out of the power of great sin. Now, I don't want you wondering what it is I did, so I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I committed murder in my heart. <laughs> and what I mean is the thought of murder wasn't just a passing thought for me. I thought seriously about having my first husband blown up. <laughs> I know it's really bad. <laughs> I, I even knew people who knew people, if you catch my drift, <laughs> who could do these things for me. <laughs> I could have actually done outwardly what had already happened in my heart inwardly. Now, some of you might be thinking, phew, <laughs> you really had me going there just for a second. She didn't really commit murder. But that's not how God sees it. In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees that it really is impossible to keep the law as a means of attaining righteousness. And he says this to them, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus basically tells them that what happened in their heart was just as real to God as what they actually did. In other words, adultery in their heart still broke the sixth commandment, <laughs> and they were still counted by God as guilty of breaking the law. Now, Jesus' point was not that if you've been committing adultery in your heart, you might as well go ahead and have some adultery in your body. <laughs> His point was that if you're going to be counted righteous in terms of the law, God's standard of law-keeping was a lot higher than theirs. A few years back, a friend of mine was having marital difficulties, and she had been confiding in a colleague at work, and this colleague decided that since she and her husband were separated, that he would offer to meet her personal intimate needs <laughs> since she and her husband were separated. And so she was tempted. She's like, it's right here. <laughs> I could. I'm already guilty in my heart. Satan used that against her. So she called me and she says, is it okay for me to participate in adultery physically because I already had adultery in my heart <laughs> spiritually? I'm like, really? 
Because <laughs> she's thinking, I'm already guilty. I might as well have me some adultery. <laughs> and this verse, Satan gives this to people so that they can justify doing what they know they shouldn't. <laughs> they take it out of context. So I was like, no, it's not okay with God for you to commit adultery physically just because you've already done so in your heart. And she's like, but what's the difference? <laughs> if I'm guilty in my heart, why not be guilty in my body? <laughs> and I said, that's really easy. Damage control. And she's like, what? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> you see, when we sin in our heart, it's a lot easier, in a sense, for God to fix or change our heart and our thinking than it would be for him to fix and heal and repair everyone who would actually be hurt from that act of adultery. I had to tell her that there was no way to measure the damage that would be done to her own heart and all of her relationships. In fact, some of the damage to her relationships might truly become irreparable because we cannot sow to the flesh and reap of the Spirit. Sowing to the flesh can only produce corruption, destruction, and ruin. <laughs> the truth is, she didn't actually count her heart adultery as real adultery, or even as real sin. She didn't see her sin the same way God saw her sin, as deadly to everyone who would be touched by it. She was believing the same lie that Eve believed, you shall surely not die. God will still love you. It'll be fine. It wouldn't be fine, and it wasn't fine. <laughs> well, of course, God would still love her. <laughs> he loved us before we ever loved him. But adultery could completely destroy what was left of her marriage, not to mention what it would do to her own heart because of the continuous guilt, shame, and condemnation. The truth is, it's a whole lot easier to forgive ourselves we haven't actually acted out the sin we may find in our heart. So, based on Matthew 5, 27, was I actually a murderer? Yes. <laughs> yes, I was guilty of murder in the eyes of God, just the same as if I had actually done it. But thankfully, God changed my heart, mostly by reminding me that it would cost me the raising of my children if I actually went through with it. And thankfully, my sins are not imputed unto me, even though I didn't know that back then. But how is it that a born-again, spirit-filled Sunday school teacher ends up with murder in her heart? <laughs> how does that happen? For me, it was pain. I was crushed and devastated by my first husband's adultery. I loved him, and I was believing for God to heal him and our marriage. So it was out of great sorrow and great pain that I wanted to retaliate and blow him up. <laughs> I love you so much, I'm going to blow you up. <laughs> so did my having murder in my heart change the fact that I was born again and spirit filled? No. <laughs> if I had actually gone through with the murder, would that have caused me to lose my salvation? No. <laughs> It would have caused me to lose my children and the life God planned for me. It would have wrecked more than I could measure, but my sin would not have separated me from the life of Christ within me, because Christ and I are one spirit eternally. 
If sin in my heart is just as wrong as sin in my flesh, then according to some theologians, he should have left me when I had murder in my heart. (laughs) When in fact, instead of leaving me, he drew closer to me. It was the only time in my life where I physically felt the restraining, loving arms of God around me, holding me back, literally (laughs) keeping me from letting my own pain destroy the rest of mine and my family's lives. It was Romans 5, 20 and 21 at work within me. I like it in the Passion Translation. So then, the law was introduced into God's plan to bring the reality of human sinfulness out of hiding. We, as humans, don't usually recognize how sinful we can be. (laughs) And yet, wherever sin increased, there was more than enough of God's grace to triumph all the more. This is the scripture, grace doth much more abound. Just as sin reigned through death, so also this sin-conquering grace will reign as king through righteousness, imparting eternal life through Jesus, our Lord and Messiah. Sin-conquering grace. It's not law-conquering sin. It's grace that conquers sin. The law just brings out what's already hiding. Law is never the answer. Rules are never the answer to change. Grace is always the answer to change. I love this description. Grace is not, nor has it ever been, permission to sin. Nor does it tell us that what we do has no consequences. We're accused of saying that too. (laughs) Grace is the very power and love of God within us to overcome all the power of temptation and sin in us and in our lives. In Romans 6, 6, the Passion Translation says this, Could it be any clearer that our former identity as a sinner is now and forever deprived of its power? For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we would not continue to live one moment longer submitted to sin's power. I love that. I love the way it makes that come to life. You know, we sang that song, we're no longer a slave to fear. We're no longer a slave to sin either. We need to talk back to our flesh, our temptations, and Satan, and tell them, you ain't the boss of me. (laughs) You ain't the boss of me. Jesus is the boss of me, and he has given me all the power I need to live the way he wants me to live. In verse 12 of chapter 6, it continues. Sin is a dethroned monarch. So you must no longer give it an opportunity to rule over your life, controlling how you live and compelling you to obey its desires and cravings. What a great diet scripture. (laughs) So then, refuse to answer its call to surrender Your body is a tool of wickedness. Instead, passionately answer God's call to keep yielding your body to him as one who has now experienced resurrection life. You live now for his pleasure, ready to be used for his noble purpose. Remember this, sin will not conquer you, for God already has. 
You are not governed by law, but governed by the reign of the grace of God. I love that. We need to tell ourselves, sin will not conquer me. <laughs> I will not give in to cravings. I will not give in to something other than God's best for me. I love the way the Passion Translation says it. Remember. Another, sometimes we forget. <laughs> sometimes we forget that sin will not conquer us because we have already been conquered and taken over by God and his amazing love. It is grace that teaches us and empowers us to say no to murder, <laughs> to say no to adultery and cheesecake and pizza and ice cream and Hawaiian bread rolls and Christmas cookies and overspending and laziness and impatience and pride and anger and any other temptation or bad habit that tries to overtake us. Because of God's grace, we get to say no you ain't the boss of me. <laughs> Sin will not conquer me. In um, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says this. This is the King James. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching or training, teaching or training us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And of course, I like it in the Passion Translation. God's marvelous grace has manifested in person. Grace teaches us. Jesus teaches us. Jesus is grace personified. God's marvelous grace, God's marvelous person, <laughs> Jesus, has been manifested, and he manifested bringing salvation for us. This same grace teaches us how to live each day as we turn our backs on ungodliness and indulgent lifestyles. And it equips us, and I added, with the power to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I really like the word teaching in this particular scripture. In the Greek, it is the word pahidayuo from the Strong's, and it simply means to train up a child. That is, to educate or, by implication, it can include the idea of discipline by punishment. But it specifically refers to the person learning as a child, someone who needs training, not whipping. <laughs> when I think of this word, the picture I get is one of teaching or training a child how to ride a bicycle. Now, I don't remember when I was a kid if I actually ever had training wheels. But I do vividly remember the day I learned to ride a bicycle without them. <laughs> Both me and my father knew learning to ride a bicycle was going to involve some pain. The plain and certain truth was I was going to fall down. <laughs> I was going to crash into the garage. I was going to scrape my knees, my elbows, and my fingers. And I was going to cry. But I was also going to learn in one day how to keep my balance and stay upright most of the time. <laughs> Isn't that a great way to describe the Christian walk? <laughs> I keep my balance and I stay upright most of the time. <laughs> but even after I learned how to ride my bicycle, there were still times that I went around a corner too fast and fell off. 
There was even a time when I, on purpose, went down a really steep hill way too fast because my brother told me it was going to be fun. <laughs> and I crashed and broke my bicycle and had to walk myself and my bicycle all the way home. This is the kind of freedom our Father's grace gives us. Grace gives us the freedom to learn and to grow. It gives us the freedom to make mistakes. Yep. <laughs> and the freedom to hurt ourselves. And even the freedom to crash and wreck our lives, if that's what we want to do. You know, my earthly father never scolded me for falling down while I was learning to ride my bike. I don't even think he scolded me for wrecking my bike. I think my dad's response was something like, so, what'd you learn? <laughs> I learned not to listen to my brother. <laughs> my father never stopped being my father because I made bad decisions or because I followed bad advice. He loved me before I could ride a bike. And he loved me while I was falling off of my bike. And he loved me when I crashed my bike. My behavior never changed the fact that I was his daughter and he was my dad. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. He never stops being our dad just because of our mistakes or failures or falls or because of bad behavior or bad decisions. When I had murder in my heart, he moved toward me, not away from me. And that's because he knows he is my very present help in time of trouble. <laughs> he is the power to think and believe and behave differently. He is my salvation and my life. And he is the one that has given us all this kind of freedom. Freedom from the law of Moses. Freedom from imputation of sins. Freedom from the indwelling power of sin. And yes... He knows that his kids will sometimes be tempted to use their freedom as an excuse to please their flesh. Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14 say this. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, even this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And of course, I like it in the Passion Translation too. Beloved ones. I like that better. Beloved ones, God has called us to live a life of freedom in the Holy Spirit. But don't view this wonderful freedom as an opportunity to set up a base of operations in the natural realm. That cracks me up. <laughs> because that is usually what we do when we want to change. We set up a, a, some kind of operation, some kind of plan to, to change what's on the outside. We set up operations and take control. It goes on. Freedom means that we become so completely free of self-indulgent that we become servants of one another, expressing love in all we do. For love completes the laws of God. All of the law can be summarized in one grand statement. Demonstrate love to your neighbor, even as you care for and love yourself. So the Apostle Paul recognized that if we tell people that God's not counting their sins against them, 
they might think that sin really is not a big deal, <laughs> that God doesn't care. It's not true. And use that as an excuse to pursue self-indulgence. Yep, it happens. <laughs> the truth is, I've seen this kind of thinking my entire Christian life. It's not just a radical grace people who think they might be tempted in this way. It's believers in general. Throughout my Christian walk, I would hear people say, even from the pulpit, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'll ask God to forgive me later. I know I shouldn't say this, but I'll tell God I'm sorry later. You see, in their mind, sin is not a big deal. All it costs me is an apology. <laughs> but when we stop to realize that even those little sins cost Jesus his blood, and his life. Because those little sins are still sin. <laughs> it still reaps corruption, destruction, and ruin. Even the little things bring that kind of damage into our life. So my whole Christian life, I've had believers express the idea that it doesn't matter if I sin as long as I say I'm sorry. <laughs> How is that not the same thing as, go ahead and sin all you want. <laughs> Just say you're sorry when you're done. It's the same wrong philosophy. <laughs> so anyway, a lot of times believers will make light of pleasing their flesh as if it's really no big deal. This is very much like my friend who wanted to know if it was okay to commit adultery, <laughs> real adultery, because she was already guilty of quote-unquote fake adultery in her heart. She didn't really see her heart adultery as actually sinful. She didn't really consider sowing to her flesh as detrimental to her life until she thought it through with a little bit of counsel. <laughs> the same is, can be true for us. We can excuse our little bouts of flesh and our little indulgences here and there is no big deal. Or sometimes even, oh, it's too hard to change. I'll just live with them. No big deal. Non-imputation of sin. Doesn't really matter, does it? Or does it? And sometimes what happens is that believers start to believe that they're actually trapped by their flesh. And they believe they can't change or they can't conquer some habit that's overtaken them. They can begin to believe that they aren't really free. They don't see themselves the way God sees them, as dearly loved sons of God who have been made free forever. Forever, as an adult, I have battled with my weight. And for years, I would beg God to change me. Because there was obviously something wrong with me. I could eat the exact same thing as skinny people and get fat. <laughs> God, you've got to fix me. <laughs> I'm not free. I was wrong. See, even today, when I think about fasting and all of that kind of keto, low carb, whatever, trying to be healthy. Part of my understanding says there's something wrong with me that I need to change. God hasn't done something that he needs to do. He needs to fix me. <laughs> wrong. He's already fixed me. He has made me perfect in my spirit. If there's anything wrong, it's in my thinking. The thinking that I'm not free, that I can't change, that I'll always be the same. All lies. All lies. We can change. The Christ, the Son of the living God, 
is one spirit with us, and he has already given us and continues to give us sin-conquering grace. We don't need a license to sin because we have a license to win. We have a license to conquer. We have a license to overcome. License means permission. License means empowered. We have not only been freed from the law, the power of sin, Satan, and death, but we have also been made free to be who he's called us to be. We are free to be loved and accepted and adored and empowered and righteous and holy and more than a conqueror and his, his bride, his beloved, his child, and his delight in knowing and understanding our Father's unconditional love and acceptance of us, we are now free to love ourselves and others the way he loves us. In Galatians 5.13 again, it says this, Beloved ones, the Passion Translation, Beloved ones, <laughs> God has called us to live a life of freedom in the Holy Spirit. But don't view this wonderful freedom as an opportunity to set up a base of operations in the flesh, in the natural realm. Freedom means that we become so completely free of self-indulgences, and this is what I put in there, because we believe, receive, and trust in our Father's love for us, that we become servants of one another, expressing love in all we do. We can't give away what we don't already have. The power of God in us, his love for us, his acceptance of us, that's what changes us and enables us to be different. Passion Translation, Romans chapter 6, verse 17 says this. I love this. And God is pleased with you. I would not have believed that years ago. I was always trying so hard to be perfect and always falling down. God is pleased with you. <laughs> For in the past you were servants of sin, but now your obedience is heart deep and your life is being molded by truth through the teaching that you are devoted to. What was that teaching? Law? Keep the law? <laughs> grace. We're empowered by grace. We're forgiven by grace. Everything is by his absolutely free loving kindness to us. And then he says, and now you celebrate your freedom from your formal master, sin. You've left its bondage. And now God's perfect righteousness holds power over us, holds power over you as his loving servants. And if you were to go on and read that, he says, he tells them, I'm only using the term servant and master so that you'll get it. <laughs> but you are sons. You are empowered from on high to live like Jesus. So, did God actually give his kids a license to sin? No. <laughs> Not at all. It's actually a license to win. He has given us permission to learn to ride the bikes of our lives without the training wheels. And that means there will be days when we take a corner too fast and we will fall down and we'll scrape our knees and hurt our elbows. But grace... God's absolutely free loving kindness and his unconditional acceptance of us combined with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit empowers us to get back up and start again. And if we should find ourselves going very fast down a very steep hill, 
because we listened to somebody who told us it would be fun. <laughs> if we end up crashing and wrecking our bike, our Father will never leave us. In fact, we might just feel his presence closer than ever. Of course, he might say something like, what'd you learn? <laughs> and we could say something like, I learned to trust you to be a very present help in times of trouble. No matter how fast I go or how badly I fall, you will always pick me up, hold me close, heal my wounds, and remind me of who you have made me to be. In my life, sin will not conquer me because God's love already has. Amen? It is during this time of the year that we often start new things. <laughs> new diets, new exercise program, new saving plan, all different kinds of new beginnings. And you know what? Science has proven if you have a plan, if you have a goal, you're more likely to reach it. Okay, than those who don't make a plan. But usually by day five, like today of a new year, they've fallen off the bike. <laughs> and they're hurt and they're crying and they believe, I can't change, I can't make this different. And they're right. In their own strength, we don't change. It is only by relying on our Father's love and the power of the Holy Spirit. When we fall down, our Father runs to us. I mean, I had murder in my heart for Pete's sakes. <laughs> God came closer because he knows what we forget. We can't do it without him. So if you've started something, or you're going to start something, you're going to fall down. <laughs> you're going to fall off your bike. It's okay to make mistakes. That's why it's grace. It's grace that picks us back up. It's grace that empowers us to see. So it's just too sexy. It is grace that says, sin will not conquer you. I already have. Amen? Amen. Father God, I thank you for your amazing grace. Oh, Lord, how I love that there is non-imputation of sins. We are so good at imputing sin to ourselves and guilt and shame and condemnation. We are so good at beating ourselves up. We are so good at forgetting who we are in your eyes and who you are in us. We so easily think we are what we have done. And you want us to remember that you have already conquered sin for us. You have given us that victory. You have given us the ability to succeed. You have given us the privilege of falling down, knowing you are the one that picks us back up. You never scold us. You never beat us. You never whip us. Because you know pain is not the power to change. Love and grace is the power to change. So, Father God, we thank you. We thank you for all the new things that are coming and the new starts and the new successes. We thank you, Father God, that that is your desire for us to always walk in what is best for us. So, Father God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.